Welcome to the Inner Athlete Podcast, where we discuss all things youth athlete development and youth mentoring. Welcome back to the Inner Athlete Podcast. Uh, I've got another special guest with me here today. I've got Mitch Walker from True Active Physiotherapy. He has multiple titles, actually, um, at different places. Um, Mitch, do you want to just talk about yourself a little bit and um, what you're doing at the moment? And yeah, I guess... At the moment, we're in end of August and we've got the AFLW season about to kick off as well. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Thanks for having me, Trent. Um, so I'm a physiotherapist, uh, predominantly a sports physiotherapist at the moment. Uh, I own a clinic in Dingley Village called True Active Physiotherapy. Uh, we're predominantly a sports and musculoskeletal physiotherapy clinic, but we see a bit of everything. Uh, have done a range of sporting-based uh, physio roles uh, up until now, so... Uh, worked in a range of local football clubs and worked my way up um, into some netball. Um, I've worked through the Pathways program with Netball Victoria, including the 17s and the 19s uh, state programs, Vic Fury as well, um, and have recently jumped ship to AFLW and now working with uh, the Melbourne Demons and have been with them now since our third season. So we're just yeah, finishing our pre-season now and about to launch into... Uh, hopefully uh, another premiership after a successful last season. So, yeah, really enjoying my time there. And it's a good split working between um, privately within within a clinic space um, and also being actually out in the field with players uh, in a club. And, uh, yeah, it's it's something I think I'll, I'll really enjoy. Yeah, how do you find the, I guess, the contrast between working in the clinic versus, you know, working... Um in the club itself because obviously they're two different environments yeah yeah good question look it's um it's it's hugely different uh, being in the club i think one of the benefits that you have is you've got regular contact with players and you've also got a really large um, amount of staff that are also uh, helping out with your with, with with the management of players day to day so um, we've obviously got we've got three physiotherapists uh working with the team we've got a doctor we've got a dietitian we've got a psychologist um, and then there's a range of other staff that are involved and um, the contact hours have also increased with with women's footy recently so uh, we have we're, we're there at the moment on a tuesday and a thursday and a monday and then we have training witness sessions on the weekends we see them all the time so um, it can be in some ways um, uh, d- different in the way that you can sort of s- build them up much more quickly in some, in some situations because you can see them much more regularly um, and then also just you've got a large group of people that are taking care of the athlete um, so you don't have to pull all the weight in terms of getting them back. There's a lot of people helping out, S&C coaches here, we've got a high performance manager all there and a rehab coordinator all helping us out to get them back. Um, whereas in private practice it's obviously a little bit different. Um, the setup we have, we're quite lucky. We've got a large gym space, so we can see people, how they move, how they perform in the gym and other bits and pieces, which is quite helpful. Um, but you're seeing different people with different goals and other walks of life, which is sometimes refreshing. Um, and the other part to that is because you're the only one that's taking care of that player, um, you've often got to be across a lot more things in terms of... Um, uh, you know what they're doing their training load what they're doing in terms of their gym and other bits and pieces and and, and working within uh, a team which is often obviously not on site so if they've got a doctor or an orthopedic surgeon touching base with them and if they're with S&C then dealing with them if they're off site so it's mm. a different sort of uh, setup, but uh, the, the mix is really good yeah that's good now 
Talk to us about the, the actual season because the, the AFL and AFLW seasons are very different yeah. in terms of starting and ending, how long the seasons go yeah. for when you have contact time with them. I guess you've been with Melbourne for the last three years, yeah. correct? So how have you seen the last three years change in terms of the amount of contact that you have and how has that kind of positively or negatively influence your ability to deliver you know outcomes for the athletes to return back from injury to you know just dealing with niggles to i guess more the day-to-day in the in the large outcome of you know getting a premiership yeah um well look yeah flw's changed like a heap over the last few few seasons um i mean initially when it first started most of the girls had full-time jobs or were just or still studying full-time and so Training sessions were generally outside of, of, of work hours. We had a weekend training session. It'd be generally something that looked probably similar to what most local footy training sessions would look like, a, you know, a Tuesday and a Thursday, and then often a weekend session as well. Um, but then as the, the professionalism has increased and the players have been paid a little bit more, it's sort of shifting now into uh, we've got training sessions that are much larger. We see them for a longer period of time now. Um, so, for example, our Tuesday training sessions, we, we see them during the day versus, which is much different to what we've previously done. Um, and on a Thursday training session, um, is still an afternoon session. But our contact hours is much more, which I, I think definitely helps um, because you can, uh, from our perspective, there's much more time for us in terms of planning and programming and that, which is helpful. Mm. But um, also in terms of touching base with the players, seeing how they pull up and being able to get that one-on-one time with them, um, which I think has been really useful. Um, the other part, I suppose, from the players' perspective is a lot of the time we've got players that are managing full-time jobs and also trying to um, to play footy at the same time. and. You know, if you're in a, you know, we've got some players in the trade, we've got some players, you know, working 36 hour weeks and then trying to play footy. And so when you're trying to rehab an injury and then play at top level sport, that can be challenging. And so now there's a bit more uh, remuneration for the players and more and more players are working part time as opposed or just a few days a week and linking that within footy. It's a bit easier for the players to also dedicate their time to, to their craft and their footy and, and hopefully they don't get injured. But if they were to get injured, they've got a bit more resource and time available to get them back as well, which I think has been really positive for the, for, the, for the game and the players and the sport. Yeah, it sounds like the AFL back in the day when it was a bit still considered amateurish you might get paid you know per game or something like that but you still had to work part-time or full-time or studying but Mm -hmm. i think now it's just more the same but i think the process has just been really sped up because i guess the learning lessons from that i guess now you've got more eyes on the game than ever before you got um i guess the girls i guess uh, the um the footballers themselves are actually promoting the game a lot more i think i definitely see a lot more that of that side um, but then as a result, the grassroots side has um, really shot up as a result. Like the grass is re- literally getting greener yeah, on is. the women's side of the game. So it's it's going to be a really interesting space to see how it goes in the next you know three to five years. Um, also has to compete against other sports as well with the uh, with the Matildas, you know, making uh, was it yeah, they made the, made the semis. Yeah. yeah. Um, They've got to deal with deal with that. They also got to deal with you know basketball. Basketball is you know one of the biggest sports in Australia. Um, then NRLs get slowly getting up there. And you also got um, Super Rugby as well. It's like there's a lot of there's a lot of competition um, when it comes to um, female sports. 
But let's talk about like um, some of the athletes that you see in the practice as mm. well. Like, what what are they coming to you for? Um, how how do you go about like treating them and looking after them? And how do you go about having that? Um, I guess the the care beyond when your role is kind of like not obsolete as such, but when you've kind of like done your job and done your role, how do you go on um, with that that extra extra hours care essentially? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good question. Look, it depends on the um, on the athlete, depends on the sport um, in terms of the things we see. We, we see a fair bit of netball at the clinic. We also see, obviously, uh, footy, and so they get different types of injuries. Um, in terms of what we see pretty commonly in, let's let's talk about youth sport and, and, and sort of those, those levels, um, which we see much more of, um, the common presentations we'd often see, uh, ankle sprains, classic sort of condition we see a fair bit of patellofemoral or sort of front of anterior knee pain that's also a really common condition we see a fair bit of back pain is another thing we see a fair bit of um, they have a high frequency they're generally those three injuries you can manage and get them turn them around reasonably quickly there's obviously some variances and some some that take longer and some that are a bit quicker but um, they're, they're pretty frequent um, but then you can see other injuries which have a much higher burden things like ACL injuries which we're unfortunately seeing a bit of stress fracture as well which mm. is another one that pops up um, a bit more than what we um, now we've got players that are playing different sports and training loads are increasing we're seeing that a fair bit more than what we're used to as well uh, those are probably the most common things we see um, in terms of I suppose parallels to the things that we're seeing um, in those in athletes with, with those conditions is Often a lot of basic things that contribute to it, um, movement patterning, you know, fundamental movements on how they land, how they squat, how they jump, how they hop. Um, and, and, and a lot of the time, even just today in clinic, we've spent some time with the patient working on some basic things that they're probably already doing in their warm-ups that they're probably not doing correctly. And a lot of my time is cleaning up bits and pieces like that as opposed to giving them additional rehab. Yeah, hold on for that for a second, that thought. So... If if because you mentioned some of the, the the issues of why there's a bit of you mentioned there's kind of like an upswing in terms of like serious injuries mm-hmm. that are presenting at the moment. Yeah. Well, what do you, what do you think is really contributed to that? Is it is it because of like the lack of strength? You mentioned that like the moving patterns that you're seeing are really kind of like there's a lack of um, quality in terms of their movement and developing the quantity on top of that quality. What, what do you think that's driving it? I, th- I think that m- movement patterning is a huge part. And I think um, n- now there's Instagram and other things that are, f- f- that, that, you, that, that are out there. There's a lot of really complex things out there and a lot of cool-looking exercises and bits and pieces that people often do. But t- to be honest with you, I think a lot of the time good quality movement and good quality basic movement patterning is probably one of the big things that we see um, perform quite poorly. Um, Knowing how to squat, lunge, hinge, basic things that I know in an athlete do a lot of um, are are really foundational movements to a lot of the things that you do out on the court and on the field and on the pitch as well. And I think um, uh, having having an understanding on how to do those things early I think is really important. And... Mm. um, there's different ways that can be integrated, um, but I think that's a really key aspect. We can talk a bit about like how that links into warm-ups and things like that a little bit later on if you'd like, but um, I, I think that's really key. Lo- load management's probably another part as well. Um, 
and uh, this this sometimes is a challenge, particularly in netball. I think when you've got players that are often playing for two or three clubs at the same time, have multiple training sessions, maybe playing for sport and other bits and pieces, and have high high training loads. Being able to know how to prioritise what's important for them, um, and being able to sort of navigate multiple people trying to work within that space, and and sometimes to their detriment. You'll have players training a lot but not actually spending much time in the gym or um, or recovering outside of those sessions um, and building themselves up as, as an athlete as well, which I think is also important. You kind of alluded to the uh, kind of how we can go about it and what you've done done with some of your athletes as well. So what are some solutions to that if the, the, if the patterning is not is off or the warm-ups is not as on par that you would hope for? You know, what, what are you doing specifically with them? Yeah, good good question. So the w- w- warm-ups, I think, is a really big one. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of programs that have now been released um, for different sports in terms of more formalised warm-up programs. So like the netballs had the knee program for a long time. Women's football has something called prep to play, which has come out. The FIFA 11's a common one for soccer. But there's a lot of formal uh, sort of injury structured warm-up programs and probably what's and there's good evidence that if you're doing a good warm-up it can assist in reducing injury but it's probably not the way that I think we've traditionally thought of what a warm-up is um, m- most of the time when you think of warm-up a lot of the pe- time people think of that as literally just increasing core body temperature increase. the old school uni <laughs> yeah. way yeah yeah things like that you know um, you know getting the joints loose and that and that sort of stuff but I can tell you now there's kids regularly going out and playing at lunchtime and recess and aren't doing a structured warm-up before they go out and have a muck around with themselves and it's not real world yeah exactly um really where i think the value is is you're trying to use that as an as almost a skill development opportunity to to reinforce and 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 work on movement patterns as we've discussed beforehand squatting hopping jumping, landing, and doing those into different environments um, and doing those with good quality and, and doing them with intent that I think is important. And I often think sometimes warmths can become too big and too confused and not have intent and focus on what we're doing. Yeah, and that's kind of what I've been doing um, with Melbourne Swimming at the moment is um, I break that warm-up into two different parts. We do like a generalised warm-up. It's more for fun game. We might get them into like a bear crawl position. They've got to play tags. So they've got to kind of move around in space and, you know, in a controlled fashion and whatnot. Then afterwards, we'll do some sort of specific stuff, you know, if we want to, you know, improve, do some, you know, bird dog um, but some sort of crawling patterns to um, thoracic mobility, and drive internal rotation, especially for the breaststrokers as well, for the kicking. Mm. Um, then I'll split the warm-up into more of a power-based work as well, with upper body power and lower body power. Um, and then we actually just get stuck into the actual training afterwards as well because the mobility and the, and the I guess, the um, the injury prevention will actually will come within the actual program when you can load up the tissues correctly. Mm. Uh, we get the intramuscular, intermuscular sequencing on par as well, which we tend to see a lot of, you know, you know, if you get someone doing a deadlift and, you know, they just lift their chest up straight away, um, they're more than likely going to use a QL and just drive everything through their lower back mm. as a result and not even feel their glutes. And you ask them, oh, um, how... Then ask them, like, where do you feel that? So I feel like my lower back's just getting jacked up. It's like, all right, you're not really using your legs in order to drive the movement. So, yeah, yeah, the the warm-up is definitely an an opportunity to improve the quality of movement. Um, But then even the, I think definitely the session itself is really another opportunity to actually break it down into its sequences and 
I know with Melbourne Swimming, we've been working really hard to, I guess, utilize a lot of isometrics. Isometrics have become the the, the new craze now, now which, yeah, I, which sure. I've seen. Um, and I've I've been I think I've been implementing them for the last three, to at least four years now, in a lot of training programs across a lot of sports, and seen some huge success mm. in terms of you know whether it's return to train, return to play protocols. Um, even use, utilizing them more in warm-ups mm. than ever before, and they actually feel a lot more physically prepared and getting away of the the two two laps around the park, yeah. do some leg swings, leg some run-throughs, <laughs> and like get that trash out of yeah. here. I've, yeah. I think I stopped using that after yeah. Yeah. after 2017. I'm like, yeah. I just threw it out, and yeah. I'm like, we can't be using this because yeah. it's not actually helping to develop the tissue quality, the sequencing of the muscle. Um, the intermuscular coordination, mm. the timing, the joint angles that we want to see, yeah. the body positioning and the body awareness, motor control, um, and then just be able to seek and then be able to isolate and integrate that in terms of like maybe a small side of game or something like that. Mm. As part of their warm up, then they can go train, whether it's on if it's a field session or whether it's in here, they can get after the weights yeah. pretty much straight away. Yeah, that's it. I think that's it. And I'm often thinking about particularly at the young levels you're trying to make the job easy for the for the next person like if you, if you can at the really young ages teach them how to do these basic things well hopefully then when they come into a facility such as inner athlete and that you know and, and you get them to do you know to squat or to lunge or to hinge and that and if you can get them to the point where the basics are down pat it just makes the progression so much easier as opposed to having to pull people back and really clean up basic things that hopefully if you can coordinate and, and 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 really ingrain early i think it makes their progression as an athlete and even just jumping to different facilities so much smoother yeah and that's like our big focus because we've got a few athletes that eventually will move on mm. from here to bigger and better things and we're totally happy for them um and the biggest thing is yeah teaching the good motor patterns skills in terms of different movements on the gym floor and obviously you know progressing and peaking them for certain competitions for what it may be then transitioning them to be able to go to that next stage as well so whether it's like um, another academy to um to college um or even like a national squad or team or something like that that they're actually more physically prepared for when they do go there and it's a smooth transition and they're going to be able to extract more value whilst they're there um, because sometimes their window might be really short for whatever reason sometimes it's factors in the control and sometimes more so it's the factors outside of their control so then they can actually um, get what they need and move on to the next phase of their development for sure 100 i think the reality also in semi-elite and and, and a lot of other environments is when you're, you know, when they're jumping into, I know this happens a lot in, in, in college sport in America, um, but also in a lot of environments here is um, you don't get that one-on-one -on -one time all the time when you're in the gym. They, they, they're put into a large group environment and you'll get feedback here and there. But if you can, you know, obviously as they're cleaning their movements up and moving with really good skill and in, in positions that you need them to get to here, it hopefully means that when they jump into that environment that they're, pretty competent with the basic things that they need to do and I think it makes a massive difference and it makes the life of the s &C coach easier at the next job which is is always a good thing if you've got an athlete that hmm. um, can do those things well um, but then no doubt has, has a positive impact to the athlete performance as well. Keep an eye out on the second installment of our conversation. If you want to stay updated on the latest episodes, make sure to subscribe to Inner Athlete on both YouTube and Spotify.